Welcome to the Zen Habits Podcast, where we dive into how to work with uncertainty, resistance, and fear around our meaningful work. This is for anyone who wants to create an impact in the world and cares deeply enough to do the work. I'm your host, Leo Babauta, creator of the Zen Habits blog. Okay, so today I am honored to have on the podcast as a guest, a friend of mine, Jonathan Fields. He um, is the creator of a podcast and a number of things around uh, the title Good Life Project. So that's the podcast. It's an amazing podcast. He's had people on there like, you know, Matthew McConaughey and um, I forget who else, Elizabeth Gilbert and Austin Channing Brown, just Really, really incredible guests, um, and he's just a great, great interviewer on that podcast as well. He's also written a book called Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive, and um, an incredible quiz that he's going to talk about on this podcast called Sparkotype. We had this great conversation um, about creating, about meaning, about uh, resistance and working with that and a lot more. So uh, you're going to love this podcast. One thing I want to say about him is Jonathan is also a friend that I've known for uh, 15 years now. Um, we've met in cities like San Francisco and New York and in a um, summer camp that I'm going to talk about uh, as we start the interview. Um, but it's just someone who I think is just genuine and authentic and just a good person. Um, and he speaks really intelligently about creation, about uh, meaning, about resistance, and and much more. So enjoy this podcast, someone who I absolutely love, and I think you'll love too. Okay, well, welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It is my pleasure. It's good to see your smiling face. It's been too long. <laughs> and you are, uh, you're someone who I've known forever, um, and uh, we haven't talked in forever either. So it's just so good to like be here with you. It's like an honor to have you on the podcast, on my new podcast. And I've, I've been on yours like years ago, but you're, you're a veteran in this industry and uh, it's just a real honor to have you here. Yeah, thanks. No, I appreciate that. I'm excited that you're uh, you're stepping into the space and sharing your wisdom in a in a new and different channel. Um, I, I I was thinking back, and I think we we were we recorded our conversation in the very early days of Good Life Project when we were filming. Right. We had like a, a crew on location at um, <laughs> Samovar. Um, oh, that's right in San Francisco, and we were kind of yeah. like hanging out there, just jamming with the like people filming us the whole time. And it was like, it almost, it feels like a completely different universe. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely high production. Some of our tea lounge, which was my favorite tea lounge back then, it's no longer around. Um, mm. So those, that was a day we can't get back. Um, mm. But yeah, thanks for having me on then. Uh, when you were, yeah, it was your first, I think it was your first season or first uh, iteration yeah, really of that podcast. Early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. One thing that I wanted to share with the listeners and, and people watching on YouTube um, is uh, one of my, I've had a, several really good experiences with you. One of them was that that interview in, in Samovar, and we've also just hung out and drank tea in Samovar. Um, we had, we've had some good experiences in New York City when you were living there, uh, including a really cool like rooftop 
nice. restaurant where you had me and my daughter um, yeah. are visiting New York City for the first time. Uh, that was amazing. But my favorite one was at your summer camp, uh, Camp GLP, um, because there uh, I really felt you and the and the things that you could create, uh, like live, like there was just such a, a fun experience of like kind of being a little kid again and being able to explore with people who are passionate. And um, uh, I met some people there who I'm still in contact with, including mm. uh, people I've worked with for a long time, like Phil, uh, Phil yeah. Powis. Um, so anyway, just amazing, amazing experience. I just wanted to acknowledge like the way that you could create these kinds of experiences. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it was great to have you there. We, we, and, and for a little bit of context for folks for five years, we brought together people for a four day sort of like weekend adult summer camp. We, we would sweep in, take over a kid's sleepaway camp after the kids were gone at the end of the summer, they fumigated <laughs> the place. And then, um, and then we literally had something like at, by the end, we were about 450 or so people get on trains, planes and automobiles from the other side of the world, from all over the place. And it was amazing, I think, because it's so hard, I think, as adults to make the kind of deep friendships that you would make at summer camp as a, you know, like nine or 10 or 12 year old, or when you were just a kid and, mm. you know, the shields weren't up already and you didn't have your established practices and patterns and you weren't wrapped up in the business of life. Mm. And it's so hard to get back to that place. So just, we want to create that container. Um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like we we did it for five years, and now we're we're sort of in the process of reimagining what is the future of that at this point. So we'll see what we'll see what we come up with. Yeah, um, I you know another person who's really meaningful to me that I met there is Yvonne. I'm drawing a blank on her last name, but yeah, Ator. Yeah, there you go. Uh, she's someone who I've uh, been friends with now since then, and uh, someone I I have a really meaningful connection with. So. Just yeah, there's a, a number community. of them, um, but it, the cool thing for me, I'll just I'll, we can finish with this now. But uh, uh, it was set, like you said, uh, in a summer camp, and it was like I had never been to one as a kid. You know, I lived, grew up in Guam, the little island, and um, but I watched it on movies and TV shows. Mm -hmm. You know, throughout the '80s and '90s, and uh, whenever um, when I got there, it was just like stepping into like the, my childhood imagination. So anyway. It was a really cool, cool space to be in. It's like you're in the movie. Exactly. It was like New York City was like that for me too. Like you see so many movies set in New York City and summer camps and like you're just stepping into the set. Um, so anyway, it was, it was a cool experience. Um, so you mentioned that was something that you're, you're um, you know, that was for five years. And like what, uh, you're always someone that I've seen like creating new things. Like you're, what you're doing is always shifting. And so like, what's, what's been the focus for you lately and what you're creating? Yeah. And I think I'm deep in that question right now. So, mm. so my, my primary impulse for effort is um, the process of creation. I am what I, what I would call a maker. Um, yeah. the, the whole experience of making ideas manifest for me is it breathes me. It gets me up in the morning. Um, it moves me through the day. It mm. nourishes me when I can actually make it happen, which isn't always. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, so, you know, and that's different for different people. Different people have different impulses. And, but for me, um, that, that has driven me since the time I was a kid. So from the outside looking in, a lot of folks see just a, a process of constant evolution and creating new mm -hmm. and different. Um, 
there there's a common thread that tends to weave through all of it, which is I'm deeply fascinated just by the human condition, by um, how we live good lives. Um, so I have been deep into really trying to understand what does it mean to live a good life? Um, what are the different elements of it for decades now? And that has shown up in, you know, in life and in business as a lot of different things. It's shown up as books. It's shown up as everything from owning a gym to a yoga studio, to teaching yoga, to leading retreats, to then launching this thing called Good Life Project, which was um, over a decade ago now, which had media and events and gatherings and to similar to you, writing books um, and then producing a podcast, um, now two different podcasts. And, um, and in 2018, uh, I start to really follow a thread that tugged on my fascination around work in a much more explicit way. And I've always been deeply fascinated by, by work because um, it is the thing that most of us spend the vast majority of our waking hours doing for our entire adult lives. And these Absolutely. days, many of us don't retire. Um, we just, we, we go until we go. Um, and uh, I got really curious, like, how do you use that time well? Mm. Um, and how do you use it in a way that, um, doesn't just provide basic sustenance, which is important, uh, right. very important, but also, you know, allows you to experience belonging and expression and actualization mm. to the extent that that's available to you in the moment that you're in in life. And it became really clear that most people don't experience that. And and a sad fact is that most people don't experience that on a meaningful level for their entire lives. And I think part of it is because we don't actually realize that it's available to us. And we were never given any sort of instructional or educational process to understand how to pursue it. I mean, you're so deep into similar questions you have been for so long. We go at it in, in very different ways often right, right. and from different angles. Um, but so... And I got really curious then um, about the underlying impulses for work or for effort um, and whether there was a common set of impulses that could be identified across all people, no matter who you are, where you came from. So we started a research project back in 2018 to see if they these things existed and, and if so, could we identify them? And over a period of about a year, um, identified 10 that tend to show up in people in different balances, different blends, but there usually is a one or two are really strong impulses. And there's also on the other side of the spectrum, um, a really strong impulse away from a particular type of work that tends to be much more draining and emptying and requiring a lot of recovery. Once I identified these and started sharing them, um, I started to realize that around each one of these impulses, or they would start to form sort of like profiles or archetypes. And they would have preferences and tendencies and behaviors that were really common patterns that wrapped around them. So we started calling them sparkotypes because it's just a fun shorthand for the, you know, the archetype for work that sparks you. And, um, but I wanted to get a lot more intel on what these were, how they function, whether they were real. Um, so we spent most of that year also developing a tool and assessment um, in part to go deeper into the research side of it and in part to create a public facing tool that anybody could actually experience, spend 10, 15 minutes and get the profile, um, was not prepared for what happened with that. Um, when we came out of beta at the end of 2018, um, it if I had hair, it would have been blown off of my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And um, the response was just tremendous because we were speaking to something that I think a lot of people are really craving, which is a better understanding of what drives them and how to then better align the work that they're doing in the world with those impulses. Um, and it, it just explained people to themselves in a whole different way. Mm. So as we have this conversation, I haven't looked at the numbers actually in the last couple of months. Last time I checked in, about 850,000 people have completed this assessment. Wow. So we're sitting on a, a, a data set of about 45 million data points at this point, which also makes it one of the biggest work-life satisfaction studies that's ever been done. Um, wow. And we've done a much smaller scale correlational um, surveys after that to try and identify because the, the theory was um, that the more you do the work of your sparkotype, the more um, you will, you know, the more likely you will feel uh, meaningfulness and purpose and energy and excitement and easier access to flow states and more fully expressed. And now the, the data actually proves that out with a really strong statistical correlation. Um, people tell us the more we actually do this work, the more we feel those things. And the opposite is also true. The less we do this work, the less we feel those things. So that's that whole project has taken on an entire life of its own. This is a really long setup for what have you been up to lately? Yeah, sure. You know, so That's so great though. I, so I find myself running two different um, organizations right now. One is Good Life Project, which produces this longstanding media property, and over the years produced all sorts of different events and retreats and trainings, and we will be doing more of that in the future. Um, and then Spark Endeavors is the organization now that holds the intellectual property and all of the developing um, solutions and programming and training that we're doing around mm -hmm. this data set, which is really much more, it's really just focused in the domain of work. Like, how do I find and do work that makes me come alive? Um, or how do I look at the work that I'm currently doing and reimagine it in a way that actually gives me so much more of what I want, which I think is also such an important inquiry these days because a lot of people really don't have, or they, or they may not feel that they have a lot of opportunity to just walk away and start something new or look for something entirely different. Or maybe they have a sure. really strong value around financial security for a family and they're not, they don't want to blow things up and go through that disruption. So we look a lot also at how do we realign and reimagine what you're currently doing mm. to actually feel much more um, alive or smart. Um, what are the processes? What are the things that we look at? So we've been developing programming. We training um, coaches in a whole methodology now. We wow. work with some of the largest companies in the world and their leadership to try and integrate these ideas amazing. into the businesses. So it's it's amazing and it's a lot. <laughs> Gee, I imagine. I, am, I, yeah. I know it's like you're, you're somebody who's like, who's been so focused on how do we streamline? How do we minimize? How do we simplify? And I feel like I've gone in the opposite direction in the last five five years. And a lot of my work now just personally is um, how do I return? How do I actually, hmm. how do I support what we've supported, keep it growing, but return more simplicity, return more serial processing rather than parallel processing hmm. into my daily experience, um, just so that on a personal level, I can breathe more easily. Uh, I love that so much. Um, so a million questions now. <laughs> we don't know we have, if we have enough time for all of it, but there's just so much richness in that um, to dig into. Um, you know, in terms of having people like 
create this kind of meaningful work for themselves? Like the things that you found the most effective, I'm, I'm sure we could talk about it for days and days, but if you were to like give us maybe like three really important things, three to four to five, uh, like things that were are, are really like the most um, crucial things, elements for um, creating that for yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, one, I would say, um, discover what your spark type profile is. And literally, I mean, I'm sure you can throw it in the show notes or whatever. There's a, like a phone facing uh, assessment that anyone can take. It'll take you 10 or 15 minutes and it could be really eye opening for you. Um, it, it often explains a lot of why you felt the way that you felt in all sorts of different work experiences. And it's also not just about work in terms of the job that you have, but right. anything that requires you to exert effort in life, that could be a hobby, a passion, a devotion. You could be a parent or a caretaker, you know. Um, what kind of spurgotype are you? I, I am my, what we call my primary or my sort of strongest impulse is maker. Um, maker. Yeah. My, my shadow or that would be sort of like in our language, the runner up, the next strongest impulse is a scientist. And, and the impulse there see that. is to problem solve, is like burning questions, puzzles, like figuring the thing out, the kick of figuring the thing out using Richard Feynman's legendary language. That jazzes me. And that really supports my maker in a lot of different ways. Because mm -hmm. when you're making things and creating and building, you're always going to hit problems. And then I go into problem solving mode and then I go back into the generative maker side the opposite end of the spectrum, what we would call your anti-sparkotype. This is the impulse, the type of work that tends to really empty you out, deplete you, require the greatest amount of recovery. For me, that's what we call the essentialist. And the work of the essentialist is to create order from chaos. It's about mm -hmm. systems, process, streamlining, clarity, utility. I love when I can operate in systems like that. And we have people on our team that are amazing at that. What? When I have to be the one who creates it, I just mm. want to curl up in a corner and cry. <laughs> okay, got it. So, so, yeah. so I think knowing those three elements about yourself, it just it explains so much of why particular types of experiences make you feel the way you feel, and oftentimes it makes you realize that you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a slacker. It's just right. you're wired you're wired in a particular way that lands. Um, where some things you're really drawn to and other things you're really almost repelled from. Um, and it helps you make choices to better align what you say yes or no to by doing that. So something I'm curious about, I'm sure you've um, asked this question yourself, and asked many times this question, uh, is this set in stone or is it something that can be shifted over time? Like yeah, we, we've been asked that from day one. And right. so I'll give you two different answers. It's it's pretty much impossible to answer that question empirically. Mm. And the reason is you would literally have to identify this profile in somebody from like the youngest days and then follow them longitudinally through all the seasons of life. So the closest thing I've ever seen to any kind of study that has done that is the Grant study. Um, and that basically was a study that was um, funded and then uh, um, curated by various curators at Harvard over a period of years where they, they actually blended two different studies together. Um, and they tracked people. They tracked all sorts of different metrics for people over a period of about 80 years um, to see basically what makes the most difference in your ability to flourish in life. So to, to be able to see like, is this a static thing? Is it just sort of like, is it you for life or does it change in different ways? You'd have to be able to do that. So empirically... Um, it would be brutally hard 
to be able to run that experiment or is it just incredibly resource intensive to do it? And we're five years into this work right now. So we would have about another 75 to 100 left. <laughs> so sure. That said, the question comes up all the time. Right. And what I can say is zooming the lens out anecdotally from a, now a massive data set that over a period of years, it does seem that these stay relatively stable. You mm. know, like once you're a, an adult and probably even earlier, and in fact, a lot of the prompts or the questions, the assessment, they're, they're, they're designed to sort of elicit a long-term longitudinal sustained response, like, like you know, phrasing as you know, like ever since I was a kid, you know, like dot, dot, dot. So we're, we're asking people to look for the things that have felt like they're consistent from the earliest memories to wherever they are now. And that could be somebody who's 18 years old taking it or somebody who's 85 year old taking it. Um, and it does seem that they stay pretty consistent. They stay pretty stable um, over life. That said, Interesting. somebody may take the assessment and then come back three years later and take it again and get a slightly different result. And people have asked me, well, does that mean that, that you know, like my impulses or my spark type has changed? And my gut says it's likely less about that and more about the fact that whether it's sparkotypes, you know, Enneagram, DISC, Myers-Briggs, every major assessment now, we all have two limitations when somebody steps to the assessment to take it. One is the depth and quality of experience that you bring to it at that moment in time. And two is the level of self-awareness that you have. Mm. Like, do you actually, are you aware of how those experiences make you feel? That changes and it can change in a dramatic way over time. So my my lens is more that it's less that these fundamental impulses shift or change in substantial ways over time and more that your experience in life or your level of self-awareness does change in very meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And you may come back to a tool like this and realize I have more input. I have a clearer understanding. I've tried or done these different things now, which maybe I hadn't before, or maybe I've done like years of uh, mindfulness or meditation or really, or therapy. So I really have a better, you know, like handle on how these things make me feel. Um, so that's the way that I, that I tend to look at it. Like anyone who's sort of, you know, shepherding a body of work like this, I, I always have to hold myself open to every possibility over time as well. So like we're just constantly asking the questions and poking, poking around and seeing, um, you know, like will, will any form of qualitative or quantitative data appear over time that would make me um, change this lens? And sure, like to, to me, that's always a possibility. I think anybody who's trying to stay integrity, um, who says like, you know, like this is my opinion and it will always be this way for life. Right, right. Um, I, I strongly doubt. <laughs> yeah. I Is it okay if I share a, uh, my own experience with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so my uh, my experience is it is really hard to change this stuff, but it is possible, um, and that you know, it takes you know a lot of work. Uh, so I personally have changed around some things. Uh, I don't. I haven't taken the Sparkotype uh, quiz, but uh, you know, just looking at my own like impulses, they the impulses might still be there, but like how I. Um, what they lead to, uh, what they, you know, the the way that I relate to them, the way that I relate to the work that I'm doing, all of that stuff can be changed. Um, but it's really hard because you're fighting against years and years of like, like defaults. Um, 
And so this is the work I do with people um, in coaching, like, like transformational coaching is actually transforming some of this stuff, if that's what's required for what they want to create. So um, yeah. that said, that I, I think it's... I think it's also incredible to like just accept uh, a lot of stuff about you, like just to understand it and really like say like, oh, there's actually a lot more like grace and spaciousness with like who I am, and I think that's that's incredible work. Yeah, and and I and I agree. I think there's there's a spectrum of things that aren't aren't changeable. Like if I said to you, hey, Leo, you know, um, I know you've had brown eyes for your whole life, but there's this <laughs> process. There's this online course I created. And at the end of it, like you just choose Absolutely. the color of your eyes you want and you can make it. You'd be like, dude, no, it's not happening. I'm good. <laughs> um, um, so I think there are yeah. things about us that are fairly immutable, um, but mm. there are certainly things that are changeable. And like you described, there are certain things that are changeable, but it's often, it takes so much work that most people never will. One thing that comes right. to mind, and this is something we've talked about in the past. So one of the metrics that we look at in addition to the sparkotype and some of the work that we do is what I would call tolerance for uncertainty. Like mm. we each have a bit of a, a set point for our tolerance for uncertainty or ambiguity. And where that lies um, can be really, really important in how you experience any type of work or task or project um, or devotion. You know, if you have a very low tolerance for uncertainty and you find yourself working in a startup, um, you're going to be in a world of pain because a startup is nonstop, super high stakes, fast paced uncertainty. That is the mm -hmm. definition. Like a startup isn't a business. It is an idea in search of a business model. Um, <laughs> so by definition, there's everything is uncertain and the stakes are really high, especially if it's a VC backed startup and you have other people's money involved. Um, now the question is, and this circles back, can you change that? Let's say somebody says, but I love like... Like th there's so much energy, there's so much fun. I love like the imagination, the creativity and the innovation. I want to be in this environment, but I have a very, I, rec I recognize that my tolerance for uncertainty is, it's pretty low and it's causing a lot of pain and suffering. Like, mm. is that changeable? And this gets to the work that you do. Yes, it is. But, but the work that you have to do to actually change that is really substantial over a long window of time. So most people just yeah. won't do it. That's right. You're you're right. It, it's it's more than most people will want to do, uh, but I I actually have seen it change, and I and actually I've seen it change more in the other direction of like less tolerance, especially during the pandemic. Oh no, kidding? Huh? Yeah, yeah. that makes sense actually. No. Yeah. Um, and so people are like finding that they're feeling more anxiety and less able to socialize and like less like adventurous. They're traveling less, things like that. Um, and so it just kind of got hardened a little bit. Um, but I think. The uh, the work to do the to change it in the other direction is is possible, not always easy at all. Um, okay, I think this is something we could talk about for a while. But I, is there a second or third um, like effective thing that we need to be uh, looking at for creating this meaningful life, meaningful work? Yeah, you know, so so tolerance for uncertainty is actually one of the metrics that we look at a lot. But okay. if we look at a um, couple other things that we tend to focus on. Um, let me think about like the ones that would make the biggest difference. I think um, one of the things that we tend to discount is um, meaning. Mm. Um, you know, we tend to, and, and meaning, granted, again, work is not the only source of meaning in life. Um, yeah. There are relationships, love, like, there's so many different potential sources of meaning in life, but work. So I think oftentimes, because so many people don't derive a strong sense of meaning from the work that they do, 
they discount it as a potential source of meaning. And yet meaning, to the extent that we can actually derive meaning from the work that we do, it's critically important and it, it transforms life in so many mm. different ways. Um, and, and yet most of us don't factor that in. Like when we're interviewing for a job, you know, we we're looking at the, we're looking at the basic needs fundamentally. Like like will it give me the benefits and the money and and the security and the four hundred one k and does it seem moderately interesting and do the people seem like they're you know like I would get along with them? Those all matter. They're really important metrics. I don't discount those. We rarely ask, does this see, seem like it's going to be meaningful work? Will it give me the experience of um, mattering? Um, when I show up every day. And what we see is that so many people actually feel like the work that they do doesn't matter. Right. And it doesn't matter to them on a personal level. It may matter to somebody who is in the organization or to the organization, right. but it doesn't matter to them. Um, and because of that, they feel like they don't matter. Now, granted, that also assumes that there aren't other sources of meaning and mattering in their life. And for many people, hopefully there are. And again, work isn't the only one, but if work can contribute to that, it makes a profound difference in someone's experience of life. If you look at the classic midlife crisis, right? And granted, now this is not happening in midlife anymore. This is happening multiple times, like very often starting in the early 20s. And mm. I think Gen Z is really pushing this because meaning and mattering to Gen Z is actually central to the decisions that they're making about the way that they're going to actually choose the work that they're doing in a way that wasn't a part of my life until much later. I'm Gen X, I'm the disaffected yeah. generation, you know, like yeah. that wasn't supposed to be part of our experience. But now I think, especially after the pandemic, a lot of people are coming back to it and saying, no, actually this has to be a part of the experience of work that I'm doing. Um, and meaning is one of those things where it's actually really hard to define um, subjectively. It tends to be more of a gut check. And it's also, there's no uniform definition because it is completely different for every single person on the planet. What is deeply meaningful one person and, and allows them to have the feeling of mattering would be ridiculous and inconsequential to another person. So you can't sort of create a checklist, you know, that says like, this is the thing where every, if you feel this, are there some common things that people point to? Sure. Um, being potentially in service of something that is bigger than yourself often helps people have a sense of meaning or mattering. Um, having reflected back to you that the work that you're doing actually is making a difference. I, I was mm. literally out last night with my wife. Um, we were went to one of my favorite authors, David Sedaris was actually in town and oh, cool. he was doing this fantastic reading and we were there and, and laughing hysterically. And he's just such an incredible, incredible commentator and writer and humorist. <laughs> um, but we got there about 20 minutes early and I sat down in my seat and just sitting there with my wife and and a couple sits down in the row in front of us, three three seats over to the left. And the guy looks at me and he's kind of like cocks his head sideways. And he's like, I know you. And I don't think I met him before. And so he walks around, he comes up to me. He's like, I know you, don't I? I'm like, I don't know. I said, my name's Jonathan. He's like, okay. He's like, what's your last name? I said, Fields. He's like, Good Life Project? I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I was in a really dark place about a decade ago. 
And I found the work that you were doing and I started just watching, basically binging all the videos that you created. And this mm. is back in the day when you and I were sitting down yeah, filming. This yeah. was in the 2012, like 2013 area, because we only did that for a couple of years. And he said, it really, really helped me. It, it got me through that window, you know, and knowing that you're doing something that um, not just makes you feel good from a creative expression and like you, like, you actually like the day-to-day tasks and processes. But knowing that it can make a difference, um, mm. it that that it matters to you and it matters to other people, I think can be really important. And so I think sometimes looking at what you're doing or when you, if you have an opportunity presented to you, like asking, will this help me have the experience of meaning and mattering? Like, can I play this scenario in my head? Can I, like, if I, beyond the day-to-day experience of just like, oh, well, this task seems enjoyable. This process seems like I would love doing it, which is important too. Bigger picture, will it give me that experience? I think that can be critically important as well. And it's an, an inquiry that we often just, we don't ask until we feel Absolutely. the lack of it. And then we end up in that classic midlife crisis, which is Midlife crisis is not a crisis of money. It's not a crisis of power. It's not a crisis of status. It's not a crisis of relationship. It's a crisis of meaning. Mm. Um, and it's because we generally don't visit that question until we're forced to. Amazing. If if the answer is no, does that mean that I like need to change what I'm doing? Or is there a way to like uh, add meaning to to the activity? Yeah, very often there is a way to make very subtle shifts in what you're doing and bring it back in. Um, and the shifts can be within the context of the work that you're doing, um, or it can actually exist outside of the work that you're doing. So let me give you the example of both. Um, in a subtle shift that you might do in terms of the work that you're actually doing, this is a study that was done by Adam Grant that he wrote about in like his earliest work, Give and Take. Um, where they took kids who were um, basically dialing for dollars, a call center at the university, and they were calling all the alumni, basically saying, hey, can you, will you donate to the alumni scholarship fund? Um, notoriously, th- these are jobs that people burn out with really quickly. Mm. They have no sense of meaning or purpose. They literally, they're calling people up and annoy- annoying people and saying like, can you give me money? Um, and there's huge turnover rate, very low job satisfaction. So they did an interesting intervention. They brought in a small group of graduates. I believe many of them were first generation or, or, or first generation college attendees and graduates. And they brought them in and literally just had them take five minutes and explain to the people in the call center what the impact was of being able to receive a scholarship that allowed them to go to the university and then graduate and then led to multi-generational change in the family because of that. That tiny little intervention completely changed the nature of the experience for the people in the call center. No longer were they just dialing for dollars. Now they were changing people's lives, right? So you show up and it's like, no, actually, like this is really important work that I'm doing. And it completely, it lets you like do a, a, a reframe or what, you know, like therapists would call cognitive reappraisal of the work that you're doing and why it actually gives you that feeling of meaning and mattering. So that's within the context. It's a kind of a fun example. And by the way, those yeah. same employees then generated tons more money after I that. was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, com- it yeah. completely changed the performance. They didn't actually realize that they were acting in any meaningful way different, but they were. And they were also probably okay. energized differently so that when they got on that phone, 
it was a different experience. People could feel it in, in a different way. And they generated a lot more donations um, by the work that they were doing. So, so that's like, you know, ways that you can make subtle shifts on the inside. Like how can I actually reframe, like a simple reframe of the work that I'm doing? Sometimes it's a subtle shift of the, ta the, the tasks or processes that you're doing in your job that would just like, what would allow me to actually do something like a little something differently or a little something more that would just make it feel more meaningful to me. Sometimes though, you can go completely external. So there's other research that shows that you can do a work that basically you you show up every day, you're, you're putting your eight to 10 hours um, and you just can't find any sense of meaning or mattering from it. Um, you're, you're shift things around, it's really tough. Um, you know, like maybe you're, um, maybe it is, maybe you're, you're a, a dishwasher in a restaurant, right? So how do you make the feeling of meaning or mattering from that? Well, there are a couple of internal ways that you could do it. You could actually reframe this as I'm actually part of the team that allows mm -hmm. people to come here, maybe in tough moments of their lives, or maybe in celebratory moments of their lives, or maybe just for a respite during the day. And I am part of the team that makes that moment possible for them. So maybe you can actually right. do a bit of a reframe for yourself. But even if you can't, there's interesting research that shows that you can externally sort of like bolt on meaning. So let's say, for example, hmm. you're saying to yourself, okay, so I'm doing this thing. I really derive like not a lot of joy from it, but it gives me a steady income and it gives me a little bit of right. extra income. And there's this person in my family who's going through a really hard time, maybe a medical crisis, and they don't have the resources to get the care that they need. And I am able to actually now support them in this and get them better care. And that that mm. type of experience actually externally brings meaning and mattering into the work that you're doing, even though the actual tasks and processes of the work itself, you find a lot of, a lot of trouble deriving that sense. So the, the fact that you know that this work is allowing you to then support something that is deeply meaningful and that matters to you and gives you the feeling of mattering outside of that work actually right. infuses the work itself with a sense of meaning. So it's, it's, there are a lot of different sort of like avenues into this experience that we just, we don't really think about. Really amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I absolutely love that. I, and I relate to that so much. So thank you for um, bringing something that's obviously very meaningful. Um, uh, I, I want to make sure we have time to turn to the topic of this season. Um, and I, I'd be remiss if uh, I didn't ask you about resistance and uncertainty um, around our meaningful work. Because you've worked with people uh, really deeply. I know you've had groups of uh, creators and makers and writers and people like that that you've worked with. Um, and so I, I imagine one of the biggest things that they that they bring to it is is their resistance. Um, am I getting that right? Yeah, for sure. And, 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 and look, I'm one of those people. So I experienced that as well. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. And I got that in the beginning, you know, as you started talking about this, uh, your way of letting um, creation like breathe you during the day. I, I thought that was really beautiful. Um, I might be phrasing it wrong, but that's, that's kind of what I got out of that. And I wanted to ask more about that, um, but we breezed right by that. That was a, a fascinating uh, thing. Um, but yeah, so uh, what if uh, working with your own resistance and then working with people who like, you know, 
people who are makers and creators and writers and uh, people like that uh, are notorious for having resistance. Like resistance is the main thing that we're working with. Uh, so like what what have you um, what have you found to be important as we like face that resistance? Yeah. So a couple of things popped in my mind um, right away. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a really big fan of single tasking, as I know you are. Um, the uh, mm. the mantra "fewer things better" is something that I've held dear for years, even though I really struggle to implement it in my life because the maker in me is sort of sure. like, I can make that, I can make that, I can make that. I think a lot of <laughs> creators really, really, really struggle with that because if the impulse is there, the impulse tends to Absolutely. just it's almost like buckshot coming out of a shotgun. It, it scatters in all different directions and you're trying to follow Mm. all of the different pieces of it simultaneously. And that's complete disaster. It just, it always leads to demise and unhappiness and discontent. Um, So really trying to get back to that mantra of fewer things better has been something which is grounding for me. It's part of the work that I'm doing right now. I'm running two companies. We're building like multiple things. And I have felt over the last year that I've pulled way too many different directions and it just shuts me down. So I'm really trying to, we're doing a lot of rewiring of process right now um, within the businesses. One of the things that I hear people talking about a lot when they're trying to, you feel stuck, you feel the resistance is the idea of um, chunking, like take things down to the smallest Mm. step. So rather than thinking I need to write a book, you know, like, what if I said I need to write one sentence today um, and then the next sentence right. and then the next sentence? And I find that really helpful. But here's a bit of a twist on that. What most people do when they chunk or, or they break things down to the smallest pieces is they're chunking process. What I would invite hmm. folks to do is think about not just chunking process, but chunking stakes, right? Because it's not process that trips us up. It's stakes. It's when we feel like um, Mm. there's a lot on the line. That's when our brain, that's when the amygdala in the brain, the fear center in the brain lights up and basically sends all the the fun electrical and chemical signals through our body that make us physically feel like we want to recoil. Um, And then we kind of shut down. Um, So one of the things to think about is not just chunking the steps to get to a certain place down to the tiniest little thing and committing to only that, but also asking yourself, is that also effectively chunking the stakes? Because if it's not, you can go into, you can create a thousand micro steps to get there and just look at like the micro steps. But if you're, if you're not also effectively chunking the stakes so that you feel like there's like, instead of writing a book, there's a tiny little thing online with this one step. Um, you're going to have the same psychological issues. You're going to have the same mental barriers and the same resistance. Like it's not effective enough to just chunk process. You also need to chunk stakes. And oftentimes, so those give, can you give me an example of that? Step. Yeah. So um, let's say um, you're thinking of starting a business um, or writing a book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right. you for most people that's terrifying. <laughs> especially if you've never done it before. Like you and I are sort of like a number of times into the process. Um, and it gets, in my experience, less, it gets easier. It gets less uh, intimidating. Like the more that you actually know that it's going to be hard, but you can do Definitely. it because you've done it a bunch of times before. Um, so rather than saying like, I'm just going to, um, you know, I'm going to write 
just a, a paragraph a day or X number of words a day, um, are you simultaneously sort of like creating the shift in your mind that lets you genuinely say, my only commitment is to write this um, and know that if I do this, that is genuinely a successful day. Or are you still mm. keeping the mindset that says, I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book. Mm. And this is a thing like the, and, and because if that if that stays sort of like the dominant super high stakes thing in your brain as you're working towards it, then every time you sit down, even though you tell yourself, well, like my job today is only to write a paragraph, your mind is actually telling you like, no, my job is to write a book. Um, and yeah. the the fear of the the size of the challenge stays with you. So if you can literally let go and say like the book will come, yes, I want to have a book. But that'll come in time. And the only way to actually effectively do that is just to focus on today and only today and trust that eventually, if I show up and I do this today and then the next day and the next day, then six months from now, I'm going to have a whole bunch of words that add up to 60,000 words or a manuscript. And then I'll have something that magically is like book length. And then I can rework it and do all the editing and stuff like that. You know, does it mean yeah. that you completely let go? of the fact that like you, you want to write a book? No, it's always going to be there in the back of your mind. But to the extent that you can really refocus and tell yourself that it's genuinely okay to just focus on what I need to do today um, and know and trust that if you show up and do this, um, it will lead to the thing that you want. It changes the psychology um, and mm. in a pretty meaningful way. It's, it's sort of like sometimes people will ask me, you know, like, what is... What does it mean to live a good life? Um, and, or, or do I think about sort of like the big picture things? And increasingly my take is I focus more on, on good days, you know, cause I know if mm. I can, if I can move through today, if I can have a meaningful moment with some, someone who I care deeply about, if I can do a bit of work that is deeply meaningful to me and allows me to express who I am in that work, um, and if I can move my body in a way that actually supports my health and do something that supports just my state of mind to bring me back to a state of grounding and peace, if I can do that today, right, mm. then that's all I need to think about. Like if I do that, if I show up every day and I say like my goal today is just to get, to make sure I check these four boxes, right? I know that 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the like, road, when I'm in those days when I'm reflecting back and asking myself, have I lived a good life? The answer is very likely going to be yes, even though I didn't sort of like keep this grand thing of I'm working towards this massive thing. Um, I literally am just taking the steps every day and trusting that if I show up and do these tiny things every day, that they are mm. the fundamental building blocks of a life well lived. And that when I get to that place where I look back and ask myself the question, then I'm pretty comfortable the answer will be yes. Mm. Really amazing. I think that feels uh, so like perfect um, that I want to end with that. Uh, so uh, I just want to say thank you for sharing that wisdom. It feels uh, exactly right for um, for this conversation and where people are at. Um, as we close here, I have a final question for you, which is just people want to dig into your work. Obviously I'll send them to the Sparkotype quiz. Um, but 
any other places you would send them? Um, probably just, uh, if you literally just Google my name, you'll, you'll pretty much find how much, <laughs> or just jonathanfields.com is sort of like the, the, the central place sure. where like the, you'll, you'll find the tentacles that go out into all the different projects there. Okay. So no like books or podcasts that, that, uh, they should be digging into, uh, yeah, just go I mean, to the central good, good place project and dig has, in from there. Right. Yeah, or, or if, if you're, if you're yeah. a podcast listener and watcher, good life project, um, is always a place to find okay. just. We have about a 12-year archive of conversations at this point. <laughs> and I actually highly recommend it, not just because I was one of the earliest and best guests on there, but, um, but mostly because uh, Jonathan's an incredible interviewer and he always has uh, really amazing people on there. And so the combination of those two is, is magic. So highly recommend that. Um, thank you for being on my podcast and, uh, I think I'm going to join you on yours soon. So that's, that's you exciting for me. Uh, but awesome. I, Thanks I, for having it's me. It's a huge honor to have you on here. Also, while we're in this conversation, I'd like to tell you about my Fearless Living Academy, which is a monthly membership program that I've created. We've been running it for a few years now, and it has all of my best courses on changing your habits on finding your purpose, and on creating an impact on the world that feels meaningful to you. We have a community section. We have a monthly uncertainty challenge, which is really powerful a way to dive deeper into this stuff. And if there's something that you want to create in the world, this is the place to go. So check it out. It's at zenhabits.net slash fearless, and you'll be taken to a page to learn more about it. Fearless Living Academy, please check it out today. Thank you. Yeah, I wish we could have uh, 10 times as much time and I'd dig in even more <laughs> to all of that. But uh, I think you gave us plenty of wisdom and a great starting point to dig into your, your stuff as well. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with someone you know who cares deeply. That would be really meaningful to me. And if you'd like to dive deeper with me into this work, please check out the blog at zenhabits.net or get in touch at leo at zenhabits.net. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join me every Wednesday for more episodes of the Zen Habits Podcast.